Well, good morning, everybody. We're continuing the, the, the series called The Financial Squeeze. And uh, the squeeze is what we're experiencing primarily in our country uh, due to inflation. And I don't know if you've uh, seen prices, but my wife and I went to the store um, yesterday to grab a few items, and it was $22 for like some bread and a couple other things. And I thought like, how? It used to be like, it seemed like we could get a lot more groceries and you just look at your, your cart and it asks you for a bag. And you're like, I don't need a bag. I can carry this with my own hands. But it seems like a lot of money that you need a lot of bags, but you don't. And that's like this inflation that we're seeing. We're seeing it in the, the prices. Uh, in my own life, I'm also seeing it not only in, in inflation and maybe that sense of like our money's not going as far, but also even with the access of material goods. I don't know if you've ran into restaurants or stores, and it seems like everyone has a sign saying, due to shortages, some of the things that you love will no longer be available. And we read that and it doesn't impact us until the things that we love are not available. And it seems like the things that we could buy on a normal basis, we're in a season where like, you don't know if you're gonna see that. Um, on New Year's Eve, I grew up in England, British family, we have something called the sausage roll. You've ever heard of that? It's the best thing ever. Take my word on that, okay? But uh, to make sausage rolls in the United States, you, you get like puff pastry and you get some sausage and you, you bake that. And, and I decided, you know, as is tradition on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day to make sausage rolls. So I went to our local grocery store and they were completely sold out. I thought, well, that's not good. And so living in our country with all these resources, I went to Target and Target didn't have it. Then I went to State of Brothers, and State of Brothers didn't have it. And I began to get a little bit nervous. Those signs that I'd just been reading flippantly were now impacting my life. Seven stores later and three hours of driving, I found the puff pastry. And I didn't buy one, I bought two. So I thought, I'm not gonna let that happen again. And so if you need one, come, uh, come see me and I will share. Uh, but but this, like, you, you feel it. It's the squeeze of, like, the stuff that we want, the, the stuff that we have access to on a normal basis. Like, we're not. Don't get me started on eggs, okay? I saw this meme, and yeah, I, I think it's safe to just go ahead and cancel this year's Easter egg hunt. Like, that's funny, but not funny at the same time. It's not funny if you really go to the store to want eggs, and it's, like, wiped out, and the prices are, are super high. And that's part of the squeeze. Certain freedoms, certain conveniences, certain things that we've always been able to count on related to our personal finance, related to the access of goods, uh, it's impacting us. Now, the government is trying to figure out how to deal with that. And they thought in August, like the inflation would start to kind of regulate and lessen, and, and we're really not seeing that. In fact, they're projecting new numbers and new increases in certain sectors that they've never seen before. And so we're still in the, the middle of this. But the government's trying to come up with these solutions but this series is about actually what is God's role when we experience the financial squeeze, specific with our money, specific with our resources. What does God want to do? How does he want to use what we're facing, the pressures that we deal with, how does he want to use that in our circumstances to actually help us? If you're a Christian, a Christ follower, God is actually involved in the details of life. You don't check in at church and then check out and then do your life. It's actually, he's, he's with you. He, He's with you, he guides you, and it's this interactive relationship. And it's the same with our, our finances, and it's the same with our decisions, and it's the same with how we work, and it's the same with our relationships, and the same with our parenting, and the same with our marriage. Like, he has specific instructions for us. And with that is help. And this, this series is looking at 
really the help that he provides, but also the conditions of that help, his role and and our role, specific in this area of of our finances. And I want to start with the passage that we we looked at last week, and it's this promise that God's given us, Isaiah 46, 4. It says, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, he being God. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. See, most, when we experience the squeeze, whether it's financial or in another area of life, most of us want to be, be rescued. The, the squeeze is on. You want that tension to be relieved. And so God gives, gives us a promise, like, I, I will help you and I will save you. And I'm going to help you in a different way because I actually made you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. I know your situation better than you know your situation yourself. So there's this just intimate opportunity that we have to connect with the creator of the universe, God, who lovingly wants to relate to us. Now, when you're dealing with finances and God says he'll rescue you, does that mean a giant hand comes down from heaven and writes you a check when you're in a financial pinch? Have you ever experienced that? And on the the signature line, it just says, God, I am he. Like, I have not experienced that. So we're not talking about this rescue plan where this just giant hand with a check comes down. But we are talking about a God who who helps us, who uses the squeezes of life for our good, who uses circumstances, who uses people, and uses us as well as other people in other people's life. He, He uses all these things, but there are some conditions to this help. And that's what we're talking about in this series. Last week, we talked about the first condition. If you missed it, the brief summary is, as I carry my load, and as you carry your load, and you're responsible with what God's given you, he will help you. The idea is to focus on our stewardships, the main responsibility he's given us. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be overwhelmed and to kind of drop what he's given us. But it's as we bear under the weight of our responsibilities, and as we look to him for help in the middle of that, he brings it. Today, we're going to talk about not just the process of responsibilities, but more of an attitude. And today, we're talking about how we can choose contentment. Contentment is actually a condition of the help that God brings. That is how we view our life, our situation, all that we've been given. The government is wanting to come up with this Inflation Reduction Act. And they're trying to figure out how to best do that. Well, God's plan is different than the government's plan. The government wants to raise taxes, increase spending to try to deal with the inflation. God actually wants us to reduce spending but increase contentment. It's very different. I don't know if you've ever heard of any sort of financial institution that says, you know what you need? You need to be more content. If we said that, we're like, thank you, but I'm not paying you for that service. But it's actually the attitude that brings far greater gains than any sort of financial plan. It's our perspective. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, God's plan, like you may have experienced if you walk with him, is, is often different than what makes sense, than what maybe we intuit, maybe what we see in our culture, what we see in our land, but, but his ways are, are better ways. And so today we're going to talk about how that shows up, not just in the ideas of life, but in the experiences of life, when we take God at his word. And I want to focus on this contentment that we've been given and how it's a secret that that we all must learn. And I call it a secret because it's a common understanding. Like we have an understanding of what the word contentment means, but 
But the secret lies in the actual living it out, where that idea makes us live a different type of life. And that's what God wants. He wants biblical ideas. He wants truth to actually translate into a different type of life. If you're investigating what it means to follow Christ, he's interested not in the knowledge that you gain alone. He's interested in how the knowledge of him makes you a different type of person. It transforms you from the inside out. And that's what God does with this idea of contentment. And I want to read about this secret in the book of Philippians. It's written by the Apostle Paul. Most Sundays, if you've noticed, Paul shows up. We read a lot by Paul because he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He started churches. He helped people learn what it means to follow. Scribes, really, this letter to the church in Philippi, which is in Greece, which he helped get start get started, and he was in prison in Rome. So if you could imagine, he's writing from prison about the subject of contentment when everything has been stripped away from him. So it's very interesting perspective. But not only is he writing from prison, he's also received a gift from them. So if you could see this church that's indebted to, them, to Paul spiritually, like he helped them get started. He's helping them grow. And they said, listen, you're in prison. You're in need. We want to help you. And he gave, and they gave a gift to him to help. In prison in those days, like that's all you, you had. You had just people that loved you, that gave you supplies, and that's all you could do to really survive. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter four. It says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. He's describing life's ups and downs. I've learned, pay attention to this, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, most of us, if you've heard this passage, you are kind of prone to see Philippians 4.13. It's probably one of the most popular verses that we have. It's celebrated in sports. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's the idea of like when you face a challenge, God will come through to help you. But in the context of what Paul's talking about, it's much more than just dreaming and God will give you the strength. It's not just about goals that we set and they will happen. It's really learning that no matter what you face, on your best days and your worst days, God will help you. And what Paul's saying is, is I'm at my worst moment, but I still have hope. I'm not broken, all is not lost. Because he's learned contentment. And more importantly, he's learned the secret of that. And I wanna just break that down a little bit. But first, let's define Contentment, what does it mean to be content? Well, content is to be free of external circumstances. Now, as I've described, inflation and our money and our resources and access to goods, these are all things external that impact us. And we always will be impacted by external things. That's called living, and that's called the world. But to be content means no matter what's happening externally, in situations and circumstances, from the good to the bad. I am not connecting my well-being, my obedience to God, my identity, my value. I'm not tying that to anything external. Like my identity is set by the God that we just read about in Isaiah who made me, who will help me, who will carry me. To be content means no matter what is going on, it's real. 
but that doesn't define who I am. That doesn't define whether I'm going to be happy or whether I'm going to be sad. What defines that is my relationship with God. Now, for Paul personally, uh, he had a wide range of experiences. Now, if you've read some of the New Testament, you've probably read letters that Paul's written to churches, and it's fascinating hearing his perspective because this was not somebody who just had this carefree life. He went from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian to being this apostle that launched the Christian movement, and it cost him. In the end, it cost him his life. But it also cost him much in his, in his day-to-day activities. It cost him his freedom, like in this case, he's writing from prison. It cost him his, his identity in society and the culture. He went from being somebody with esteemed value to being this just Christian that had lost all sense to many of the outside world. And so he knew all of these range of experiences. He, he knew what it meant to be in need. And he trusted God and he was at peace. And he knew what it means to have plenty, as he's describing in Philippians 4. But he'd also learned to not get carried away and trust the money or trust the resources. Because at any moment, he'll not have that anymore. So what Paul's describing is his, his experiences. Like in the things that he has, he, he welcomes and he's thankful. And in the thing that he lacks, he knows God will take care of him. That's what it means to be content. Whether I have a lot or whether I have little, it's the same God who sees me who cares for me, who will help me. This is actually an amazing perspective. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm looking at my resources, when I'm looking at my checking account, my banking, don't even mention retirement percentages, it seems like I could have just thrown money out the window and that would be a better retirement plan. But when you look at that, it impacts you and it's just like you can have those ups and downs. It's what Paul is talking about. It's not trivial. It's It's very close to us. It's our resources. We've worked hard for that. He's saying you can't bank your life on your resources, who you are, your identity, what your value is. And he keeps talking about this secret and this learning. And so what's the secret? What is verse 13? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The key to contentment is not your own will. It's not your own understanding. The key to contentment is the power of God, real power that works within us. That's why becoming a Christian is the most important decision you can make. Because outside of a relationship with Christ, when you've not surrendered your life to him, you are cut off from the power of God. He still made you, but because of our sin and rebellion, we don't walk with him. We don't have this fellowship with him. But through Christ, we have the opportunity to re Connect with the living God. When we decide to do life his way and decide to surrender, decide to give all, even our resources, say, God, it's yours. You've given it all to me. When we we get to that point, then we get his living power in us. That's the secret. It's not me. It's not my own understanding. It's God's power at work. You see this throughout the scriptures. Philippians 1.6, I just want to take you on just a brief overview of this. Philippians 1.6. Six says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus when he returns. That's a promise. The work that he's done, he's not done yet. He will continue to work in you. He's not gonna bail on you. That's a promise. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, earlier in the letter to this church in Philippi, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You get this sense, right? This is real. It's living God, living life with him. It's happening in real time. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who's able to do it immeasurably more than all we ask for or imagine according to his power, which is what? At work within us. This is the scene. This is the theme of the scriptures. On my own, with my own intelligence, with my own resources, I can keep trying, but I will always come up short. I don't have the power. But I can connect with God's help to him and his power is given to me. And now I can be free from all these external things to actually live the life that he's called me to. This is the greatest news any of us could receive. There's hope. We can move forward, even in the area of our finances. So that's the secret. It's the power of God at work within us. We can learn to be content. Whether we have a lot, whether we have a little. Now, when I say that, don't you just kind of keep thinking, I know, but it's a lot easier when we have a lot, right? That's what I think. This is like awesome when you're living the plenty life when it's all in front of you. What Paul's saying is with that power, even those dark days, even those hard days, the overwhelming days, where you feel like everything keeps stacking up against you and not for you, even then, God's power can be made known. You'll experience it in a real way. He will help you. So that's knowing the secret. It's God's power. That can make me content. I can face whatever I face because of him and the power that he gives. Now, knowing it and doing it are two different things. I don't know about you, but I've spent most of my life knowing things, trying to figure out how I can actually put it into practice. And if you're a parent, you're dealing with that with your kids. Most times when you tell your kids to do something that they've not done, what do they usually say? I know. I know. Or when you mess up and you think, I know what I should have done. I know what to do. So most of the time, our issue is not lack of knowing, it's lack of doing. So knowing contentment and the secret is is part way how we learn to trust God. But it's in the experience that that power is actually driven into our heart. It becomes real and not just true. And so we learn contentment by experience. Now, I'm going to take you just on a brief journey, but here's like the Here's the end before the journey. God knows for you and I to learn contentment through experience. Most of the time, the learning is gonna come through days where we feel like we do not have what we want. That's really the secret. You learn most of the time when you have to trust God to come through because you have nothing else. That's why so much scripture and even Jesus himself talked about how hard it is for rich people to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because when you have so many resources, you trust in that. That becomes your God. You live for that. You chase that. You can't have lacking in what you've got. It's like you've just got to always have. You've got to have more. You've got to have more. And this is the culture that we live in. Do any of you ever think, you know what? I need the older version of my iPhone. I need to downgrade. Now, some of you may like 
may be thinking that. That's not normal. I usually think it because I, I get comfortable with the version I'm on. And I'm like the old man now. I, say, I don't know how this thing works anymore. But we always like what's new. And our culture is just, it's like updates, updates, new version, new version, more money, more money, more money. And we chase it, and we chase it, and we chase it. But there's more to that. There's more to life than just chasing upgrades. And most of the time, the experiences that we need is in those times of, of lacking. So I'm going to read again from, from Paul. And he describes how we learn contentment by experience. And he's writing to Timothy now. And verse five, I'm starting, but in, in verses three and four, he's talking about how you need to watch out for people who are speaking like false doctrine. So he's warning Timothy, like you need to protect the church here. There's people that are, that are actually coming in and trying to gain godliness to experience material gain. The idea is if we can deceive people and they'll follow us, we can become rich. And this is what Paul's warning against. And he says, in constant disagreement, he's describing them among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. He's talking about these false teachers who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Now, if everything I've just talked about, that seems crazy, but this is where you know the pull of having more and having more. It's so strong that people would even corrupt the truth to gain more money. And we still see this today. In fact, we could do all sorts of things to get what we want. Don't underestimate the power of desire. We all have it. What Paul's saying is you, you have to watch out because even these people are acting like spiritual maturity and growth is just a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. It's a means to, to gain status to gain material wealth. And then he says in verse six, this is, this is what we have to pay attention to. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Now, this is where the secret now becomes a little bit more clear. Paul's saying like, I've learned the secret. to The church in Philippi, I've learned the secret. It's the power of God. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But to Timothy, he's now describing the experience of that contentment, and that experience is actually godliness. If you want to experience contentment, you can't just focus on don't want more stuff, don't want more stuff, don't want more stuff, try not to, to focus on money, try not to focus on money. Guess what? If that's what you're focused on, then it just grows, even if you're saying to not focus on it. It's like when you, you know, you, you want to eat healthy, all you see is all the bad stuff you want to eat, right? It's the same, like you don't want to be greedy, you don't want to focus on wealth, but then that becomes what you focus on. So what Paul's saying is the secret to contentment, to learn by experience, is you actually have to pursue godliness. For godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment and godliness, they go hand, to hand, hand in hand. They, they cannot be removed. If you want to grow in contentment, you don't read a book on contentment necessarily. You don't, you don't just chase contentment. You, you actually have to become godly. It's through godliness that contentment grows. That's further kind of description of this secret. Earlier in this letter to Timothy, uh, you're not going to see this on the screen, but, but listen to this. He talks about godliness. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Notice the contrast. He's always speaking the truth, but then saying, 
all sorts of people are going to say lies, and they're going to tell you different things. He's like, watch out for this. And so he says this in chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with the irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, the idea is of all the resolutions, like we want to be healthy, we want to get fit. If you're still going strong, you're in the minority of the population, January 15th, right? But it's saying of of, of all the goals that we could set in our life, whether they're financial, whether they're career, of all the goals, the greatest goal is to grow in godliness. And that's the first part of how we can, according to the scriptures, grow in contentment. And the first point of that is is it's planned. It's planned contentment. Planned contentment means I will budget, first and foremost, for godliness. Now, we don't hear this much talked about related to finances. But if you just focus on budgeting for finances, but you're not budgeting for godliness, you really are incomplete. Because as you grow more godly and adopt more of God's ways and his perspective, your finances will actually come in line with that. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do that by yourself. You may need help. Financially, we can make decisions over many years, and we can be in a deep pit. As a church, we want to help you. That's why we do the, the workshop. We want to have conversations. We want to help you get out of that pit. But again, if we're just focusing on financial but not godliness, we're lacking the power to actually change, to sustain, to set different types of goals. And so budgeting for godliness means I'm going to orbit my life around the kingdom of God. I'm going to focus on investing my time and my resources on spiritual growth, on the church, on community, on being a part of expanding God's kingdom forward. That's how you grow in godliness. If you invest in the kingdom of God, you're investing in something that goes on forever. It doesn't just stop with this life. Every other investment we make ends when our life wraps up. Even if we pass on an inheritance to our kids, it all will end eventually. But what Paul is saying is, if you invest in the kingdom of God, you're investing in eternity you invest in lives being changed as people come to know Christ, you're investing in the eternal plan that God has for people. People go on forever. We'll all go on forever. Fellowship with him in heaven or apart from him in hell. What Paul is saying is if you want to really count the cost of what's the most important, it's what are we doing for eternity? And how do what we budget for in this life, how does it impact that? And to budget means to allocate our resources, to put them in a certain way. And so one of our greatest resources is time. And so you're here on a Sunday morning, and you could be watching movies at home with a furry, warm blanket. And that seems maybe really good on a day like this. But when you invest in learning and digging in the scriptures for yourself, 
and being involved in a group and in a community. And when you, these things, you even have to sacrifice for your time. And when you give to the church, you have to sacrifice even financially. When you do that, what Paul's saying is like, there's a gain that you cannot measure. It goes on forever. It's the greatest thing that we could give to, the kingdom of God, being a part of expanding here uh, in North Fontana. But you have to decide to budget for godliness just like you have to budget for your, your finances. You have to decide in advance. I'm going to carve out time for the things that matter. I'm going to make myself available so I can be a part of ministry opportunities. So if you're a gal, if you're a woman here at Ridgeview, what Sam was describing of this woman's event, part of the budgeting for godliness is like, I'm going to put that on my calendar and I want to make that a priority, even though there's other things that you could be doing. And there might even be other things that you'd rather be doing. Did you know, related to spiritual things, sometimes anything other than the spiritual thing we would rather do. Did you realize that? I'm a pastor, but that's true. Because sometimes you just want to stay at home. You don't want to have to talk to people. You don't want to have to get out of your house in your comfy pants. And I like comfy pants. Sometimes it's like nothing would be better. But that's because oftentimes we're buying in the lie that godliness is not of great gain. Because in our world, people are telling us this is of great gain and that's of great gain and we're, we're confused and we're deceived. And our hearts, just our desires are always so strong. So this, this, is, a, this is a battle. Uh, for me in my life, the ways that I budgeted for godliness I can't even account for the difference that it's made. And that's not because of, of me and I'm special, but I decided in my early 20s that I wanted to be a part of expanding the kingdom of God wherever he put me. And I decided I didn't want to chase just a career for a career I knew I needed to work. I was getting married. I knew I needed to support my family, but I knew my work could not define me. And as a man, that's a struggle. You actually have to really come to grips with that. But I knew my work would end at any moment. I had to live for something bigger. And so in my early 20s, I decided, like, I really want to invest in growing, to learning what it means to be a godly husband, learning what it means to be a godly father, learning what it means to be a godly man. And I had opportunities in my early 20s to go to conferences that our network put on. And we traveled to Fort Worth, Texas, and we had to buy plane fares, and I had to buy a conference, and I had to buy a hotel. And it cost me sometimes over $1,000 in my early 20s when we were just married. But I knew, because the scriptures say, though it costs you all you have, get wisdom. I knew there was a value that I could not see fully. And because of those choices I made in my early 20s, my 40s are different. This is what Paul is saying. Even your own health, if that's the end, it has some gain but it runs out. But if you invest in your spiritual growth and you invest in the church and you invest in kingdom expansion, it has great gain. That's what it means. Contentment and godliness. So the idea is for that to be true, I have to say no to some things. To say yes to some things, you have to say no to some things. Right? To say yes to church means I have to say no to staying home. Say yes to serving means I maybe have to say no to watching an NFL playoff game. It gets that real? Yeah. To say yes 
to growing means you need to give financially. It means you have to say no to shopping. Maybe no to Starbucks. I'm gonna, I'm, I could hit everything. Just I need to get every grimace on everyone's face. What's yours? You know, what is yours? But that, it's the willingness, like, uh, I need to choose something greater. Because no matter how good your coffee drink is, it's just a drink. It doesn't make a difference in this life. And I love coffee. You know me. But compared to spiritual, eternal things, it's nothing. It's nothing. But you can't have both. You can't just live without boundaries and get godliness. It's through boundaries and choices that you grow in it. That's what Paul's saying. So you have to budget for godliness, and, and you do have to budget your finances. Because if you don't budget your finances, then actually discontentment grows. Because most of the time, if you don't budget your finances, you spend more than you make. And if you spend more than you make, then you become in debt. And when you become in debt, you're a slave. It's very hard to focus on budgeting for godliness if you're a slave to money. That's why Jesus says you can't serve both. And so if you don't have a budget, that might be a place that you want to start. And at the, the workshop, we want, to, we want to help you with that. But budgeting, your resources is just a way of saying, like, I need to make sure that I'm living within my means so I can make the right choices. If I had it my way, I wouldn't budget. Like, if it was just my own preferences, I would just have the bucket approach. Just throw everything in a bucket, and then when you need it, pull it out of the bucket, and you hope there's enough in the bucket. That sound, does anyone like, like that? That's, but that? That's not helpful, because what do you do if there's nothing in the bucket? Uh-oh. You ask the government to put stuff in there. It doesn't work like that. So you have to budget for your finances. There's three main things you can do with your money. You can give it, you can save it, or you could spend it. Those are the three things. The budgeting of your money limits most of the time your spending. We don't have to limit our giving or our saving. Most of the time, the conversations with my wife are like, wow, we're giving a little too much. Or, you know what, we're saving too much. We need to calm down. It's most of the time it's in our spending. And so a budget helps limit uh, the spending. Uh, there's some tools. Uh, you can check these out. These are just tools for you. Uh, this is YNAB, which stands for You Need a Budget. And that's what I actually use myself. It's just a helpful tool for you to budget your, your, your finances. Uh, there's also uh, Every Dollar by Dave Ramsey. There's Mint. Again, you can check these out for yourself. Uh, you can do a spreadsheet. You can do whatever works for you. But budgeting is your way of being responsible so that you are freed up to budget for godliness. Those two go hand in hand. So that's planned. I can plan this. I can think about this. I can be intentional. And I encourage you to do that. And we'll, we'll help you with that. If you need help, let us know. So that's the first, planned contentment. The second is unplanned contentment. Now, this, like I mentioned, this is where most of the time we learn. And what Paul said to Timothy, but godliness with contentment, again, is what? Great gain. And then he describes this picture, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. He's actually referencing a statement by Job in the Old Testament. And I'm not gonna take a ton of time to walk through Job, but if you've never read the book of Job, it's about really the wealthiest man 
in his era that lost everything and how he wrestled with that loss and learned to be content. And in the beginning of this chapter, he's being tested by Satan and he loses his resources, he loses his kids, he loses his stuff and he's in mourning. And in verse 20 of chapter one, he says, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is a picture of like the sovereignty of God, how God can allow things to happen that we don't want, that we wish we didn't have to face, that we wish we didn't have to bear. But notice Job goes back to this creation picture. And what he's saying is the real value of a person is their life. I came into this world naked and I'm gonna leave it the same. I didn't come into this world with stuff. I'm not gonna leave this world with stuff. The real value is the life that God gives, the person. It's an amazing perspective. But after we're born, we begin to add more and more things. And as we add more things to our life, it's really easy for this perspective to get lost. We begin to just want to chase that things. And then if we lose those things, we begin to want to replace them. And, and we just can have a real battle. We're just keeping adding things that have some value, like material goods, we need that. But they can't become the main thing. What we have and resources and our money and our material possessions, they're like props you know, on the stage. I don't know if you've ever seen a show. One of my favorite shows is Les Mis. Here's a, here's a picture of Les Mis. It's one of the, the greatest musicals. There's also a movie. And here's a scene with the props of, this kind of represents the, like the French Re Revolution and they're singing this anthem and they use these props. And this is like material possessions. Go to, go to the next slide there. This is them singing with those props. But if you go back to the previous slide, you don't gain the meaning from just seeing the props. The, the props are to set up the message, the scene. And that's what really money is. It, it's props. It's, it comes alongside our life, but the message is not the money. It's not our goods. It's not our stuff. It's our life. And God's not going to ask us, how much stuff do we have? He's going to ask us, what did you do in your life with what you were given? So it's very easy to focus on the props and not the main thing. And the main thing in our life is to know God, to make him known, to honor him, to worship him, to magnify him above all. That's the main thing. So if you hear Job's response, again, it's, it's amazing perspective. And as you read Job in chapter one, you think this is gonna be like the shortest book ever. He has this perspective, he's settled, God's given, God's taken away, and then things get worse, and then his friends come to counsel him. And then Job begins to wrestle with why this has happened. And then he looks at his friends, and he wonders why this isn't happening to them, why is it happening to him? In the middle of all this, with contentment 
and godliness, we have to deal with something that will rob us of it every time, and it's comparison. Comparison is the great contentment crusher. In my life, usually it shows up if I don't know I need something until I see someone that has something, and I think, oh, I need that. I didn't know I needed it until I saw it. It's like the homepage of Amazon. It's amazing all the things I need on that homepage. It's like they've crafted it personally for me. They have, right? It's to lure me in, and comparison just crushes contentment. And so Job wrestles just like we wrestle. And what could seem like is wrapped up because of his perspective goes on and goes on, and the book is actually 42 chapters. And he just questions God. Job demands answers. And I appreciate that. I appreciate him going to God and asking all these questions. And then in chapter 38, the book of Job, God answers. Well, he actually answers Job's questions across four chapters. And God, I am he, the creator, answers, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who decided the dimensions? Did you do the math on that? Who set the borders of the coastline? Are you the one that sends lightning bolts? Are you the one that report to and say, here we are? Are you the one who determined all the unique creatures on earth and what they look like? So Job had questions. And God had some questions for Job. And Job got the point in verse or chapter 42, towards the end. He says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? And then Job responds, surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. I want to encourage you with that because the deal with our contentment and godliness and comparison and all of these emotions that we have related to our finances and all of our stuff, we're just going to find these moments where we don't understand why things happen to us the way that they do. But don't let our own brain and your brain and my brain be the limit of what God wants to do. There's just going to be things we don't understand. But to grow in godliness means with faith, of what I know about God, what I'm facing right now, he will come through for me because his power is real. If you've not experienced that power here at Ridgeview Church, we want to help you experience the power of the living God through deciding to live for Jesus in your life, to invite him, to lead you, to surrender to him, give him everything. As you do that, you begin on the path of godliness and you have a great gain in your life. In fact, you may lessen your financial means but grow in godliness and your life will be far better that's how God has designed the world. Don't limit your trust in God on your brain size, on your understanding. Doesn't mean you don't ask questions, but he's God. He will help you. But oftentimes you have to take that first step of trusting him and you see him come through. I want to just walk through a few next steps as the band comes up to wrap up this morning. Uh, First next step, these are just things that you can do to put this into practice is just reflect on what budgeting for godliness will look like. Like, what does budgeting for godliness look like in your life? What is it that you'd have to say yes to 
or no to to grow spiritually. And if you're not sure, have a conversation with us. We'd love to help you think that through. That's a really good question to wrestle with. What would budgeting for godliness look like in my life? Second, uh, just ask God to show you any areas of discontentment. It could be just that comparison, which I've talked about. It could be resentment, of what you're dealing with, what you're facing. It could be a lack of faith. Just ask God to show you those things. And we want to pray with you. Let us know. We can pray for you and with you. And then finally, uh, sign up for the finance workshop if you've not yet. I think this will be a real help to you. And again, if you need somebody to get into the weeds with you, we want to do that. Again, we're not just giving ideas to fill our heads. We want to learn so we can put it into practice. That's my prayer for us this week. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word, which is good and right and trustworthy, even though sometimes it seems counterintuitive. God, I in my own life can be so muddled by all the things I have on my plate that the core of this life is, is godliness. It's building my life around growing in my relationship with you, investing in spiritual things that last and go on forever. God, will you help all of us to orient, to calibrate according to this truth? God, I pray for those struggling financially that just feel like they're in lacking, that even in the lack, that they'll see you come through, that they'll learn to be content as you help. And for those of us who have a lot right now with plenty, God, will you show us the ways that we can invest and bless others and move your kingdom forward? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.